You're listening to the Galatians Spying Out Our Liberty in Christ series, preached by Pastor Dan Christians at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. I want to begin this evening by telling you a little story about a pastor I heard who made a very difficult decision. He had to make a very difficult decision, and that was that he had booked this special speaker to come about three years in advance. And so this, this man traveled around, and he was really well known. The preacher, he was an older fellow, um, but just a passionate, zealous, biblical preacher. And so his church were excited about this conference that was coming up. But the problem is, a few weeks before he came, the pastor got a phone call from somebody that said, Hey, listen, brother, I just want to let you know, um, I know you have this guy coming to your church shortly, but his mind is kind of going a little bit. And, and so, like, he still, he'll get up, he'll preach a great message, but he's just, not, he's just not all there anymore. And so, the pastor didn't know what to do, and so he asked his church, he said, hey folks, what do you want to do? We, we've had this guy, we've been excited about him coming for a long time. Um, we're going to have this, this conference every evening this week coming up. What should we do? And the church said, you know what, let's just have him come, let's see how it goes. Well, the first night on Monday night, the preacher got up there and he, he opened up his Bible. He said, you know, with confidence, turn your Bibles to this passage. And he preached a message that was clear and biblical and bold and powerful. And, and the pastor saw it in his chair and he thought, I don't know what I was worried about. This is wonderful. What a message that was. And so, so now he's all comfortable. And, and then Tuesday comes and the next night and the preacher gets up again and he says, turn your Bible, and he says, turn your Bible to the exact same text that he had said the night before. So he thought, oh, this is interesting. Maybe he's going to do a, you know, a, a continuation of the message he did before. He didn't. <laughs> he started the message the exact same way. And the entire message had the same points from the same text, and it was, it was the same message again. Well, Wednesday rolls around. Turn your Bibles to the same text. And he preaches the same message. And he does it again on Thursday, and he does it again on Friday. And, and by this time, I mean everybody in the audience, they've come all week, they, they know what to expect, they know the points by heart, they know what's coming, um, but they're hearing this message. And what was amazing about this is that afterwards, when the pastor spoke about what it was like to have this guy come, he said, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. Why? Because my people, and, and he's, he's spoken to so many of his people, my people, they got what the Bible said there. You know, as much as it was repetitive, as much as it was the same thing over and over again, they got what the Bible said. And how essential is that? If we could just, just latch on to something that the Bible says, one, one book, one text, and really try and live that out, we'd be so much better off than coming to church every week and hearing a wealth of biblical wisdom and never applying any of it to our lives. Okay, we, we grow mentally and we just don't change. And it's a problem. And I say that all because I heard a guy preaching from the book of Galatians this week. And this is what he said. He said, God knows that we're dumb. So he gave us the book of Galatians. Because what Galatians does is it pounds the essential foundational truths into our lives over and over and over again. Tara and I went to New York last week. It was an awesome trip. Apparently, I was a little bit mean the first day. I was pushing her from one place to another. And I didn't realize that at some point we should probably eat and she wanted to change, and a bunch of other things that I didn't do right the first day. But I got it sorted out, and I've um, suffered the consequences, and so you don't have to be mad at me after. Um, but we had, we had a great time. And one of the things that we did is we went to the Rockefeller Tower, and we went all the way up to the, the 
the roof. You can go the top of the rock tour. And so we're on this, this building, I don't know, 70th floor or something, and looking out over all these beautiful buildings, and you look at them, and they're just, all of them are unique. They're all just incredible works of architecture, um, incredible sculpting. The materials are like glass and marble, and, and it's just, just absolutely beautiful. And you walk the streets, and you look up, and you can't believe that somebody actually made these things. The buildings are just so beautiful. And so this thought crossed my mind as I was looking at all this beauty and this wealth and all of those here that was man-made. And the thought was that the most important part of each one of these buildings is the same for all of them. No matter what they look like, no matter how tall they are, no matter how beautiful and what types of materials are used inside the buildings, the important thing is always the foundation. Brother Cameron is here tonight, and he was a building inspector for how many years? 27 years, okay? And as I said the word, the foundation, he was mouthing it, because he knows. Because if the foundation is crooked, or if it's weak, or if, it, if it's going to crumble someday in the future, the entire building is not, it may look beautiful, it might look nice, but it's a liability. It's a liability to have a building with a bad foundation. You have to have a solid, good foundation to build on. And again, this is what the book of Galatians gives us. It gives us this solid biblical foundation. And so we're going to pray, and then we'll get into this message again tonight. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this evening. I thank you, God, for your word. I thank you that it has truth, that is so clear, um, Lord, that, that you've used this book of Galatians to over and over again pound into our minds what we ought to be doing as believers, what we ought to believe, what, what the gospel is. That the gospel is not a gospel of works, of law, but it's a gospel of grace and of faith. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us to learn from your word and, and purposely apply it to our lives tonight. I pray that the Holy Spirit would apply it to our lives, that we would be obedient to what your Spirit tells us to do. We thank you so much for the cross, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The following verses that we'll be reading are just packed with truth. And we could probably spend a number of weeks trying to unpack them. Instead, what we're going to do is we're just going to do our best with the time we have tonight. And so I just want to give you a, a, an outline of what's to come. We'll be in Galatians chapter 3. We'll be starting in verses 19. We'll go from 19 to 29. And so verses 19 to 20 gives us the purpose of the law. Verses 21 to 24 will show us a comparison between the law and God's promise. And then verses 25 to 29 will show us the benefits of the promise. And so just if you have that outline, there's so much here, and it's very easy to get confused. So if we just start with that, okay? Purpose of the law, the comparison of the law and promise, and then we'll see the benefits of the promise. And so we've been in this chapter for a long time already. We've 10 weeks already in the book of Galatians. And every single week we've seen that God's gospel, what Paul is preaching, is that salvation, justification, comes by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. The works of the law can never justify anybody. And so Paul is giving us argument after argument, and he continues his argument again in verse 19. And here what he's doing in verse 19 is responding to the question, what's the point of the law? If it doesn't justify, what's the point? So let's see what he says in verse 19. Wherefore then serveth the law? What's the point? 
Okay? This is a very obvious question. Paul has said over and over again that, that the law does not justify. The law does not justify. Okay, well, the, Paul, if the law doesn't justify, why did God give it anyway? What's, what's the point of God giving a law that cannot help us to save us? So what's the purpose of the law? It was added because of transgressions till the seed should come to whom the promise was made, and it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now, a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Okay? Verse 20 is a little bit confusing, um, but I heard a preacher once say that the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. And so if there's a portion of Scripture that you're just like, I don't really get what that's saying, like maybe verse 20, um, that's okay. Look for the clear things. Look for the plain things. And here we understand that what a mediator is, is a go-between. So what's the purpose of the law? God gives the law for a reason, and it was a go-between. It was given through angels between God and man. Okay? So that's what it is. It's, it's a mediator. Now, what a mediator does is it tries to resolve some type of conflict between two opposing parties. And so this mediator comes in, and it comes in for a purpose. What's the purpose? He tells us that when he says, it was added because of the transgressions. Now you say, well, because of the transgressions, that, that doesn't make sense. Well, it does make sense. The law was added because mankind was so sinful. And so God, seeing man's sin, and man is looking up to God saying, ah, you know what, I think I'm okay. That's kind of our, our general default position. I think I'm okay. I look around me, I see everybody else, and I think I'm okay. And so God says, well, just so you can see your transgressions, just so you can see your sins, here is a law to compare yourself to. Here is a law that will provide a mirror for you, right? When you look in the mirror, it doesn't make you ugly. It just shows you that you are, right? (laughs) Okay, fine, it doesn't make me ugly. It just shows me that I am, (laughs) Maybe that's not the case for you. You should be happy if it's not. When I look in the mirror, I mean, most of the time, I think I look okay. Until I look in the mirror. (laughs) This is what you do, right? It's what I've been doing more and more lately. Um, Kara's been talking to me about my belly a little bit. So um, that's what what a mirror does, and that's what the law does. It was added because of the transgressions. Why? Till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. So it's added because of the transgressions, because eventually the seed is going to come who the promise was made. Now look back at verse 16. Remember in verse 16 he says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and not to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And so the seed he's talking about here is that all of the promises that were made to Abraham, the promises of redemption, the promises of a blessing for all nations, those promises are all fulfilled in one seed. Not all of his descendants, but in one person, in Jesus Christ. So the the, the hope that anybody, anybody in the entire world has to ever be redeemed, to be brought into a right relationship with God, is through the seed of Abraham through the promise which is fulfilled in one person in Jesus Christ. And so the law was added so that we would see that we're sinful, so we'd look in the mirror and we'd go, yeah, I do that, yeah, I do that, yeah, I do that, yeah, I'm a sinner. We look there and then we say, okay, well now what do I do? The promise, I look to the promise. The promise is Christ. It all points me to Christ. 
That's the purpose of the law. Verse 21. Is the law then against the promises of God? Okay, okay, Paul. So you now have told me that the law, it cannot justify. But somehow it, it points me to, to Christ. But when you talk about the law and the fact that all the law ever does is condemned, and yet the promises, they're there to, to justify, to make us righteous, does that mean that the law and the promises of God are in conflict? You know, should we, should we just erase the law entirely? Is there really no purpose? Was the law a mistake? What's going on here? Well, he explains that. He says, God forbid, for if there had been a law which, which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. He's saying, if any law could have brought life, it would have been the law that God brought. So yes, you're right. The law can't bring life. That's, that's Paul's whole argument. And they see that now. And so then he says, in verse 22, But the scripture hath concluded, All are under sin, that the promises by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. No, guys, get this. The, the law wasn't given just so that you would feel dead and you'd be conflicted about, well, I have a promise and I have a law. I have one thing that kills me and I have one thing that makes me alive. No, that's, it's, you're not supposed to think of it as in conflict. You're supposed to say, I see now how wonderful the promises of God are because the law points me so clearly to my depravity and the promises show me how wonderful God's salvation is. You see, when I compare these two things, I don't say they're in conflict. I say that the job of the law is to show me how wonderful and how awesome and how amazing the promises are to point me to them. Okay? Now, to, to make this make sense, if, if somebody came up to me and said, hey, listen, I want to um, strap you in a chair, I want to inject you with chemicals, I want to, to give you uh, radiation, I want to give you treatment for cancer, do you know what I tell them? No. I don't want to go through that. It's a, a difficult process. Okay? I wouldn't want that. But as soon as I get a diagnosis that I have cancer, then I want to try and do the thing that saves me. And I'm willing to go through some of those hardships because I know it'll save me. Because I know that the end is good. Well, here we have the worst diagnosis we could possibly get. That we're all guilty before a holy and just God who will all stand before someday. And what the, what, what the promises say is that they say, yes, I know you're guilty, but there's one who has come to save you. There's one who has come to redeem you. And so when we know our diagnosis, the promise then looks so wonderful and amazing. And our problem is, we slip back into the, the idea, the mindset, where we're kind of good. Where we, we have something to do with our salvation. Where God is somewhat impressed with us. And so when we look at the cross, we don't see Jesus dying for a wicked, awful, terrible enemy of his, we see the cross as Jesus dying for his buddy, his friend, somebody who's going to, you know, love him and serve him. That's, that's not how God saw the cross. Hey, the cross is Jesus coming to die for you at your very worst. When you were in the depth of your depravity, God sent his son to die in your place. And so the law shows us how wicked we are, and it shows us how wonderful and how amazing God's promises are. Verse number 23. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Before faith came, the law kept us in bondage. 
That is, that is what the law does, is it puts us in bondage, it puts us in prison, it, it makes us a condemned person until faith is revealed. And then Paul's going to give in verses 24 an analogy. And I think, I hope this will help us understand this. Wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. So Tara and I are, were planning our vacation for New York, and I think while I was booking the tickets for Broadway, I was also planning my sermon title. And so the sermon title this week is The Great and Terrible Pedagogos. And I'm usually not that theatrical with titles, um, but I don't know if I was just in the mood or something. But I bring that up because here, the Bible says that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. And the word schoolmaster is pedagogos. And when Paul said that word, when he gave that analogy, they would have all completely understood what he meant because it was having a pedagogos was a very normal, culturally understood thing for them. In their, and we might think, well, he just means teacher, but that's not just what he means. A pedagogos for them was very common in Roman and in Greek households, and they would hire like an employee or they would have a slave, and the slave's job was to raise the children. And that meant the slave's job was to discipline the children. And so rather than, you know, moms and dads taking all this time getting their kids in trouble all the time, they would hire somebody or they'd have one of their slaves that would walk around with their children. They would take their children to school. They would sit there while they're in school and watch them while they're in school. They would take them back home. And every time they broke one of the laws of the household, it would be the pedagogos' job to discipline them. So you can imagine how children began to feel about their pedagogos. You have somebody that's going around watching over your back all the time, and every time you do anything wrong, I mean, they're there all the time, trying to catch you doing something wrong, break, break some of the household law rules. And when you do it, they're right there to discipline you. I don't think I'd like that guy very much, right? And so here he, he tries to give us this example of what the law did, is that the law was our pedagogos. It was our schoolmaster to bring us into Christ. The law is there all the time, hanging over our heads. And so that no matter what we do, when we do something wrong, it just shouts to us, you're guilty, you're guilty, you're condemned, you're going to be punished. And it's there all the time, revealing what our heart is really like. So we can can look at the law and we can say, yeah, I I really don't like that. But what you can't look at the law and do is you can't say, oh yeah, I can tell from the law that I'm just. No, the pedagogos, he is disciplining you all the time. He's showing you that you're not just. And so if we can look at the law and say we don't like it, or we can look at this law and say, listen, I'm glad that the law shows me that I am never going to be able to justify myself. I'm glad that the law points me to Christ. That's what it does. It brings us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. The law can't save you, faith can. Verse 25 to 29, we get some of the the benefits of faith, of God's promise through faith. It says, but after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. You get that? After you've put your faith in trust, you're no longer bound by that schoolmaster. You have this freedom that you've never had before. Tara and I, when we got married, we, before we were married, we always had a, a chaperone go with us places if we had dates or, or things like that. And one of the things that was so shocking on our honeymoon 
is, was the freedom we had. Like, all of a sudden, we get to decide what time we go to bed, what time we get up, what time we, you know, where we go, if we go. I mean, everything we do is decided by us, and we just do it together. And it was just, just this freedom we never felt before. And when you have faith in Christ, it brings you out from under the law that was smashing you down all the time. Now, this is a truth that you need to apply to your heart because sometimes we have trouble getting ourselves out of that. We continue to feel guilt and shame. We continue to pound ourselves, even though God says, you're forgiven, you've been justified. We shouldn't do that. Okay? We should recognize that, that our freedom in Christ, that, that the law is no longer pounding you. It's no longer a curse for you. That you have Christ as your righteousness. Verse 26. For ye are all children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. You have a new father. You're children of God. For as many of you have been baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. If you've been baptized into Christ, now, just to clarify that, the word there, baptized, baptized is baptizo in the Greek, and it, it simply means immerse. They didn't have an English word that meant the same thing, and so when they created, when they translated the Bible into English, they created the word baptize. And so when we look at the word, we often think of water baptism every single time the word baptize is used, but we shouldn't. The word simply means immersed. And so it's not saying when you've been water baptized into Jesus Christ. It's saying when you've been saved, when you've been immersed into Christ, you've put on to Christ. And this is such an, an awesome picture of what happens at salvation. That you are now in Christ. And so when God looks at you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. That you are in him, perfect and holy. That you have these white, beautiful robes. And not only that... Here, in this life, you put on Christ. You start to be like him. Your character changes. Your identity changes. You are now not just you, and in your sin, you are you in Christ. It's a wonderful thing. Verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In Christ, God no longer sees the sinner. He doesn't see different classes. He doesn't see anything like that. And we shouldn't see that either among each other. We see that we are now one in Christ. The pastor is no more important than the toddler in Sunday school class. We are all the same. We're one in Christ. And if you be in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. You're a child of Abraham. And with that, heirs according to the promise. The promise is that one day Christ will have a kingdom and that he will rule and reign forever. And now you are heirs according to that promise. Next week, we'll spend a lot of time talking about what it means to be an heir of Christ. Verses 1 to 8 of chapter 4 deal extensively with this. But I just want you to get that. That, that because now you're in Christ, we are all one and now that you're in Christ, you are heirs according to this amazing, incredible promise. You are one of the children of Abraham. What we get when we have faith in Christ, none of us we can, can comprehend it. So as we close, I just want to look really quickly at three things by way of application. The first one is this. Remember the purpose of the law. I know you know it. I know we've gone over it. 
but you've got to make sure you have this in your life because all of us have a tendency to revert back to law. Purpose of the law, Galatians 3.19, the law was added because of transgressions. It's there to show us that we're sinners. Romans 3.19-20 says, Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. That's what the law does. It makes it shows that we're guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. That's what the law does. It's a mirror. It's a diagnosis tool. It is not any tool that you'll ever be saved by. It is not any tool that you will ever be sanctified by. Okay? Now, there are, there are other purposes of the law, but the primary purpose of the law is, is simply to show you you're a sinner and to point you to Christ. I read something this week. Spoke, speaking about the law, um, this man said, the one advantage of knowing the law is that we are shown just how sinful we are. There are no loopholes to salvation, for we are completely guilty before God. We are entirely dependent upon God's mercy if we are to avoid his wrath. Only with a deep understanding of our sin and God's judgment does the good news of God's rescue plan truly make any sense. There is nothing we can do and nothing we can say in our defense except one thing. Repent. That's the law. That is its purpose. And so if you're here this evening and you've never repented and you've never put your faith in Christ and you think somehow you are going to be good enough. I beg you, reconsider. We, we think that, that self-righteous people are usually religious people, right? Religious people say, I am good because I have religion. And irreligious people say, I am good without religion. Anytime you think you're good, we're in trouble. And we don't understand why God gave his law to show us we're sinners. That is the purpose of the law. The, the second thing is this. It's the power of God's promise. The power of God's promise. As, as the law reveals the state of our hearts, as it reveals us to be depraved and wicked, then it highlights the wonder of God's promises to us. Galatians 3.22, But the scripture saith and concludeth that all are under sin. We're all guilty. We're all under sin. We're all headed to eternal torment in hell. And then it says that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. That is the promise. The promise by faith. No law can bring life. It can only reveal death. The promises of God that are given in Christ set us free from the curse of the law. The law kills. Jesus makes us alive. The law makes us sick and Jesus heals us. The law condemns and Jesus justifies The law separates us from God. Jesus makes us one with himself. The law dooms us, and Jesus gives us hope. It diagnoses us as sinners, and Jesus cures. The law convicts, and Jesus pardons. The law punishes, and Jesus forgives. The law kills us. That's what it does. It shows us how dead we are. And the promises in Jesus Christ, they show us life. We are all under the wrath of our own pedagogos, the own law that follows us around everywhere. We are all under sin. We are all kept under the law until faith has come. And when faith has come, 
we are no longer under that schoolmaster. That's the promises of God. There's nothing greater. So we see the purpose of the law. We see the promise of God, the power of God's promise. And finally, we see the possession of faith. What does it mean? When you have faith, what happens? What do you get? Well, first of all, we get a new father. We see that in Galatians 3.26, for we're children of God by faith in Jesus Christ. Do you know that God is not like some universal father? He's not the father of all people everywhere. I think often we think that. He is the creator of all people everywhere, and he is the judge of all people everywhere. But he is only the father of those who are in Christ. He's the father of Christ, and the only way he's ever your father is if you're in Christ. We get a father, an eternal heavenly father. This is the doctrine of adoption, that God has adopted us into his family. We also get a new spiritual identity. That we've been baptized into Christ. We have, Christ has come into us and now we have put on Christ. We have this new identity. And so we're no longer Jew or Greek or male or female or, or bond or free. We are all one in Christ. Do you know what's funny about what he says there? The Pharisees, who were probably a, at least connected to the, the group of people who would have come down to Galatia to try and mess up the church. Okay? So they're, they're probably part of the group of people who had the false gospel. Their prayer that they would say every morning was, Dear God, I thank you that I'm not a Gentile, I thank you that I'm not a slave, and I thank you that I'm not a woman. That was, that was their prayer. And here he says, well, that's erased. It's gone. You have this new identity in Christ. Now, it's important to understand that that. This is true in the context that it's written, okay? And so it's not saying that there actually is nothing at all difference between men and women, okay? Because otherwise we should all just go into the women's bathroom or the men's bathroom, whichever one's open, just, just go for it, right? It's not, like, that would be ridiculous. In the context it's written, it's saying, as far as your justification is concerned, as far as your standing before God is concerned, there is no difference, We are all at the same level. We are all sinners. And if you're a child of God, we're all equally saved by faith. There's no better Christian and there's no worse Christian. There's no person who is is loved by God more than somebody else. There's nobody that has more value or less value. We are all one in Christ. That's what these verses are saying. And that's When I'm at my worst, I mean, when I'm thinking about my sin and my thoughts, and when I'm there, this is encouraging for me know that God is still my father and that he's not looking at me in this terrible way that I'm still one in, with, with every other believer in Christ it's an encouraging thing all of these things have applications for our lives if we know we're a child of God we should live like it if we know that the people around us in this church are children of God we should treat them like it we shouldn't have a hierarchical system where we're looking at one person as so much better than another. We're brothers and sisters. We're all children. We're all in Christ. And we all have a new inheritance to look forward to. Eternal life with Christ. Heirs to all the promises that are given to Jesus. Do you understand what that means? Everything that Jesus has one day is yours. Heirs of all the promises of Christ. Because you are in him. We have so much to look forward to. And we, we foolishly get wrapped up in this world. Many of you have heard 
of a man named Lawrence of Arabia. And Lawrence of Arabia was one of the heroes of World War I, and he was also involved in some peace talks that took place in Paris in 1919. And so he, he brought some of the tribal leaders that represented the tribes in Arabia, and he brought them to Paris. That was their first time traveling away from their tribe, first time going to any place like Paris. And so they stayed during these peace talks in a really fancy hotel in Paris. And one of the things, probably the thing that, that amazed them the most, is that when they turned on the handle, all of a sudden, water would come out. And they're from the desert in Arabia. And so they, they turn on this handle, and there's just this endless flow of water, and it's, it's amazing, it's incredible to them. They can't believe it. And so what they did is that they secured some plumbing tools and started taking apart the faucet. They were going to take the faucet home. And they were, they were explaining to Lawrence, listen, we're going to take this home, we're going to put it in our homes at home, and we're going to have an endless supply of water in the desert. And it took Lawrence a little while to explain to him, to them, that, hey, listen, if you're not connected to the source, if you don't have this, this source of water, then the water's not yours. It, it never comes. It never flows. You can have a beautiful faucet, but if it's not connected to the source, you'll never get any water. It doesn't matter how pretty we are on the outside. It doesn't matter how great our buildings look like. It doesn't matter how, how wonderful people think of us. If we are not connected to Christ by faith, if we are living under the law, all of that beauty is a waste. There's never any water flowing. There's no inheritance. There's no promises that are ours. There is nothing that are, is ours unless it's by faith. And so we are so foolish to think that living our life where we, we, I don't know, make people in church with us think that we're good Christians when really we're not, even, we're not even saved? When we are living our life bound by this law that we've put in ourselves once again, rather than living by faith, by a relationship in Christ where we're actually connected to the source, we are so foolish. He is the vine and we are the branches and nothing will ever flow through our lives unless we're really connected to him. And that connection, it's not by law. It's only by faith. And so believe what you know is true about Christ. Believe it and act like it. Believe that he died for your sin. Believe that he rose again and gained victory over death. Believe that you have new life in him. Believe that one day you'll spend eternity with him and that this life is just passing by, that it's short. When you believe those things, your life will change. And that's the whole purpose of this. We are in Christ. He is in us. And so we should live like it. We should act like it. Because when we know that and when we believe that, then his life will flow through us. Let's pray.